Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So I tried to write this nice introduction for Emily um, and about like privacy and public life and brave, being brave and burying yourself and having the self-awareness that I think she does in her writings. And it kind of just didn't work. So basically, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to read the back of the book, basically. <laughs> Emily Gould is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Observer, and Gawker.com, and of course, EmilyMagazine.com. Please welcome the author of And the Heart Says Whatever, Emily Gould. Hi, hi. I'm glad that the bus got you here. <laughs> However you got here, thank you so much for coming. Um, and uh, this is my first time ever in LA, so it's a special occasion for me. Um, and uh, thank you so much to Skylight for making that possible. I thought I would mark the occasion of being really far away from any possible members of my family or, uh, or my boyfriend or anyone who knows my boyfriend might report back to him, except Mo. Um, to read the part of the book that has the most uh, sex and like weird objectionable shit in it. So um, let me just take a, a second to find it. I'm like, here, I can just flip to a random page. No, um, I, I do actually know what part I'm going to read. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, uh, yes. This chapter is called Going Dutch. After I moved out of the Greenpoint apartment where Joseph and I had lived for four years and my month-long sublet in the Beast House ended, I moved alone into a year-long sublet in a rent-stabilized building on the, south, on the southernmost edge of downtown Brooklyn. The other tenants were all so old and infirm that you had to wonder how they negotiated the steep, crumbling stairs. Mostly, it seemed, they didn't. They, or maybe the building itself, or possibly the construction site next door, were the source of a perpetual stench of damp rot that oozed through the floor-to-ceiling cracks in my apartment's peeling walls. But I lived there alone. I could do whatever disgusting thing I wanted at any time. For months before this became a source of terror and sadness, it felt like a delicious privilege. As long as the weather was warm enough to keep the windows open all the time, it definitely felt like a privilege. Being single, living alone, and working from home was an ongoing source of semi-gross self-indulgent joy. I told Philip this, and he nodded sagely. Just wait until the weather turns cold. I ignored him like I ignored everyone who wanted to criticize anything I was doing. For the moment, which was all that mattered, my life was full of a shrill, desperate kind of fun. 
I was still working at Gawker, but I was getting more and more disgusted with the job and with myself. In the back of my mind, I knew I would quit soon, and so I felt very free, like nothing I did mattered anymore. Thinking about what I would do for a living after I'd left a job where I had professionally exploited and alienated every connection I'd ever had was too terrifying to contemplate, so I didn't contemplate it. I was also avoiding thinking about what would happen when I finally realized that Joseph and I were not getting back to together. This was also around the time that it was becoming unavoidably clear that my paternal grandfather in Long Island wasn't, at 90, going to bounce back, good as new, from his latest bypass surgery. All kinds of doom were on the horizon, but I was determined to enjoy myself while I still could. Moments before someone dies of hypothermia, I read this in a magazine, the internal organs give up and stop hoarding blood, so all the warm blood rushes back to the skin surface at once, and the sufferer tears off his clothing. That's what I was doing, I guess. It looked, and sometimes even felt, like exuberance. It's called paradoxical undressing. Now you know. <laughs> um, it was during this time that I began dating, that is, actually going out to dinner with semi-strangers for the first time. This might sound weird, but you have to keep in mind that I had spent all of my early 20s sitting on the same couch with the same guy, getting high and making fun of the people on dating-themed reality shows, uh, like shipmates or... <laughs> Well, really mostly shipmates for some reason. Um, perfect, then, that I was entering this complicated arena of human endeavor completely mind-fucked in terms of being able to invest myself sincerely in the life of another human being. I was not remotely over Joseph and still deeply ego-wounded from my intense Joseph rebound crushes rejection. There was no way in this state that I would be able of, capable of sustaining even the most superficial of relationships. Somehow boys could smell this fundamental indifference on me. It's unsurprising, I guess, that they loved it. <laughs> Meanwhile, I had thought I would never have sex again. I will never have sex again, I told my friends. I can't imagine feeling comfortable enough with anyone to want that. I will be completely alone for a really long time. This lasted a few weeks. It was a Saturday night, and I had just said goodbye to my parents, who had come to visit me and check out my new place, and also to visit my sick grandfather in Long Island. I had showed them around my apartment with pride. I think I thought they'd be impressed. They had been tactful. It gets great light, my mom said, looking out the window toward the tidy brownstones a block away, where I did not live. Earlier in the car on the way back from a trip to the Brooklyn Heights promenade, she'd revealed that she'd been deeply insulted by some offhand comment I had made a few months prior. Right? <laughs> um, then, that night, we walked up and down Smith Street for half an hour trying to find a restaurant that would seat us. I had neglected to make a reservation anywhere. I hadn't lived in the neighborhood long enough to understand the extent of its nasty, bougie sceniness. We ended up in a generic Italian restaurant's clamorous backyard. Just as our food arrived, my mom started talking about the months prior inadvertent insult again. And in the same gradual way, you realize you're going to vomit or sneeze, I realized that I was going to start crying. 
Oh, cool, I thought. <laughs> the pushy waiter came around to ask, how is everything, folks? Just as my tears began to drip into my already over-salted pasta, we decided against dessert. We walked back to my apartment in semi-silence. My parents came in and walked me all the way up the smelly stairs to my front door, where at first it seemed that we would part like TV suitors after an unsuccessful date, them in the hallway, me inside not inviting them in. But my dad asked if he could come inside and pee. It's like always a winning gambit. Um, and while he peed, my mom hugged me and told me she was proud of me, living here on my own, so grown up. It might have been my imagination that an unspoken, even though you are acting like a teenager, hung in the air between us. I closed the door behind them and felt like crying again. But instead, I called a car service to take me into the city where I had to cover a party for work. It was the last night of the long-running party thrown by the hipster DJs who called themselves the Misshapes after that song. Um, and the plan was to lurk with a staff videographer outside the West Village Club where the party was being held and interview the revelers whose ridiculous costumes, gawkers, commenters would then be encouraged to mock. The club staff chased us away from the entrance, so we had to do our lurking in a back alley. It turned out that this back alley wasn't a very popular route to the club's front door. Every 15 minutes or so, someone in a kefia or suspenders or a terry cloth romper would walk by and refuse to talk to us. Zach, the videographer, was just out of college. He weighed maybe 120 pounds and habitually dressed a bit like the kids we were making fun of in skin-tight pants and 24-hour Ray-Ban Wayfarer sunglasses. When no one came by for a while and we started getting bored, Zach asked about my day and I told him about my parents and my sick grandfather and the stupid fight and the crying at dinner. He told me about his fraught relationship with his parents and his recent breakup with a serious girlfriend and he offered me a Xanax. <laughs> I thought this was all very charming. <laughs> a few minutes later, he asked in an offhand way, do you want to make out? I hadn't ever thought about this possibility, but once I had, I didn't bother to overthink it. Zach seemed simultaneously very practiced and very teenagerishly enthusiastic, biting my lips and my neck. The biting was, I could tell something someone else, probably the ex-girlfriend, had liked. In return, I kissed him the way Joseph had liked to be kissed. It was the only method of kissing I knew. I fixated on this for the first minute or so, and then my reptile hindbrain took over. I'm not going to read the next line because I think it's stupid. <laughs> it's like, um, I, but I'd had something really gross there, and my editor made me take it out because it was too gross. And it was about, I think it was about him like wiping his hand off on his pants afterwards because he, I was like, no, don't wipe it off on my dress. That's just dry clean only. 
Um, silk. Um, the next day he came over so that we could review the footage we'd shot and decide how to edit it, which we did for a while, and then we did some other stuff. It was very unusual, not entirely historically unprecedented, but nearly for me to engage in this kind of stuff without contextualizing the hookup as part of a larger narrative. We are falling in love. I am seducing him, I am being seduced, etc. What I was doing with Zach, however, was not a story, it was just itself. After I let him out of my apartment, I went in the bathroom and inspected the bruises on my neck, smiled at myself in the mirror, then went back to my desk and finished up the workday without another thought about it. That night, I had a date, a first date with a friend of a friend. It was, for all intents, the first date of my adult life. We met for drinks, which he paid for at a bar near my house. Wow. Um, Dan <laughs> Daniel was tall with close cropped hair and a small nose that made him seem, despite his masculine bearing, cute in the way the creatures in the small mammal house in the zoo are cute. We had met at a party months earlier and I'd remembered him and initiated a volley of flirtatious Facebook messages. He had some sort of do-gooderish job for the city that required him to wear suits, and he had come straight from work to our date, so he was wearing a suit. I was wearing the same jeans and t-shirt that I wear pretty much every day. We talked about work, and I kept making jokes where at first he'd look at me with a look of shocked incomprehension, and then he'd decide to start laughing. But mostly, he was very comfortable to be around despite seeming slightly nervous. His attraction to me was palpable in his nervousness, which made him attractive. Drinks went well enough that we decided to have dinner in the backyard of a nondescript Southeast Asian restaurant a few blocks further down Atlantic. It turned out that he had traveled to Southeast Asia, so a lot of our dinner conversation consisted of me encouraging him to describe his travels. It was nice to feel that I had the upper hand and could basically instruct him to entertain me with stories. At the end of an anecdote, I could hear the indrawn breath and see the tension in his jaw as he waited to see my reaction, and then after I noticed that, I started deliberately withholding each of my uh-huhs and encouraging half laughs for a second. He didn't order a drink with dinner, so I didn't either. We split the check. As we were leaving, he told me that he was having such a good time, he didn't want the evening to be over, not in a sleazy way, but in a spirit of quiet resignation, like, oh, but alas, it's over. I pointed out that I lived very nearby, and I asked him if he would like to come up for coffee, although I didn't have any coffee. In my apartment, not drinking coffee, Daniel was too nice. As we kissed, he kept looking at me, like trying to catch my eye, and when he did, the look he gave me was wide open and sweet. When he touched me, his hands were tentative, and their movements seemed motivated by therapeutic intent, like he was trying to give a bit of a back rub to my front. None of this was particularly erotic, but I was in a state, and in retrospect, it's hard to know whether he felt like a lucky beneficiary or a frightened observer of the state? I guess I could ask. Like, we're still friends on Facebook. Um, I don't think it was really so much that he was scared, but more that he was trying to be proper to preserve at least the idea that he was the more rapacious of the two of us. 
After a long above the belt while, he excused himself by saying basically that he wanted to leave before he was tempted to do something he'd regret because he liked me and therefore wanted to take things slow. In the moment I was charmed by this, but after he left, I thought it over with a cooler head and realized that Daniel and I were at cross purposes. He seemed to want a girlfriend. Underlying everything he'd said, even the things he'd passively communicated to me via his Facebook profile, the photos with animals, bicycles, and children, was this message, I am ready to have a girlfriend. And I'd been attracted to this because of, I think, brainwashing? But when I stopped to think about it, lying in bed, in the exact center of the bed, occupying as much space in the bed as I wanted, I thought about it. I realized I did not want to be Daniel's or anyone's girlfriend, not remotely. But I still went out on another date with him because I did want something from him and I was curious to see whether I could get it and what it would be like if I did. And in the interim, I created excuses to shoot videos for work with Zach again. <laughs> this part is embarrassing to read out loud. Um, as Unlike all those other parts. Um, as a child, I was a little bit disgusted and embarrassed to learn about the fact of life and did not immediately connect the idea of sex to the feelings I got when I lay on the carpet on my stomach idly humping a stuffed animal while watching Sesame Street. <laughs> Uh, the revelation that sex could be something to anticipate happily rather than to dread as another unpleasant grown-up duty came to me eventually in a dream. Nothing overtly sexual even happened in this dream. It was a dream about the feeling of lying in bed on a sunny afternoon with sun streaming. Blah, blah, blah. Um, it took a long time for life to catch up to this idealized vision of what sex could be like. It's still not like that every time. But when it is, I notice. Bored and at loose ends one night, I went over to Zach's apartment to watch HBO on his huge TV. He lived in one of those prefab new buildings in Williamsburg that's full of rich recent college graduates who personalize their apartments with cast off furniture from their parents' rec rooms. Inevitably, in these places, there is a leather sectional sofa, a big flat screen, and either nothing or dorm-style posters on the walls. After we spent an hour watching Curb Your Enthusiasm with his roommate, we retired to the bedroom. There, we enacted a ritual that is so familiar to me, I think there should be a name for it, the moment when the girl, still semi-clothed, lies in bed, and the boy jumps out of bed to hunch over his computer and scroll through his iTunes to select the perfect soundtrack. <laughs> Inevitably, he hovers there, deliberating, for about 30 seconds too long, so that the girl has a chance to examine his shirtless torso, unflatteringly hunched and compressed, unflatteringly lit by the screen's blue glow. What a relief, finally, to hear those first few strains of air or My Bloody Valentine and to be able to close your eyes and let yourself be lulled back into complacency by the warm comfort of familiar melodies and the familiar feeling of skin on skin. 
Afterward, we lay in bed and talked and laughed until late at night, just like people who are falling in love, but without any of the fraught intensity or self-consciousness that people who are falling in love feel. How ideal, I thought. And I remembered my childhood dream of happy sex. In the future, I hoped that all my conquests would be like this. Everything was much easier, it turned out, when you didn't care about the person in bed with you. I was shocked that it had taken me so long to figure this out. I'm going to stop there, because believe it or not, it continues, and I do many more embarrassing things. But anyway. Um, thanks. Um, so, um, if you have any questions, <laughs> I'll do my best to answer them. But no pressure to have questions. <laughs> yes, you there in the stripey shirt <laughs> with a dog. <laughs> No, that's, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, totally legitimate. Um, I guess I had actually never uh, written a book before, and I didn't feel confident that I would be able to write something that really did have a beginning, middle, and end. I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to do that until um, I was almost done writing it, and then I was like, oh, phew. <laughs> so I was just kind of hedging my bets. I mean, I do, you know, I do... I thought about it a little bit like uh, recording an album. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that, but I've read books about what happens when people record albums, and it seems like you um, write a bunch of songs, and then you spend a lot of time thinking about sequencing the songs, and you probably have a few songs that are B-sides, or maybe you just never release those songs and hopefully burn the masters, because it would be a bummer if like, you died and someone then you know, released a big double album of all of those horrible songs. Um, so that was, that was my thinking. Thank you. This is like a comment. I had a lot of questions, but I'm so ADD that I forgot them as I was. But um, I thought that um, the moment when your parents come while you're in a state, and um, then you know they make you feel really bad and like hysterically cry. Um, this seems like it happens to everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was like a This American Life, uh, there was a This American Life <coughs> one of those visits recently. Um, and um, I don't know, did you, and yet, like, it's not something that I've heard that many people write about. Um, so uh, I don't actually have a question, I have a comment. I think they know probably that you're in a state and they're trying to help, but they're, as parents tend to do, trying to help in like the least helpful way possible and there's no way that they can avoid doing that. I'm sure I'm going to get my like karmic comeuppance for those if I ever have kids. Um, yeah. My mom has threatened to write a counter memoir by the way, but she's a lawyer so I don't think it's probably in the office. <laughs> anyway. 
Okay, if, if no one else has any questions, I think we will proceed to the next ultra fun event um, of our evening, which is I'll stick around and sign some books. Thank you all so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.